0: Over the years I've read many books um, and many have had differing impacts on me and and caused me to think differently. Um, And I'm not sure I've read a book that's caused me to um, reflect so deeply on my own prejudices um, and stuff than the uh, book that's known as The Narrative, of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. It's quite short, but it is the very frank observations of a gentleman that used to uh, be part of the slave trade in America. Um, And in particular, his reference to various slave owners that he had the misfortune uh, to be owned by. Um, And it says this... um, sort of around chapter 10. Another advantage I gained in my new master was he made no pretensions to or profession of religion. And this, in my opinion, was a truly great advantage. And you're like, what on earth is he reading out? Why would someone not want their boss to be a Christian? I assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest and most infernal deeds of slaveholders could find the strongest protection. You see, religion often finds uh, a cover for all sorts of terrible behaviour, we justify ourselves. Were I again to be reduced to the chains of slavery, next to that enslavement I should regard being the slave of a religious master, the greatest calamity that could befall me. For, all, uh, for of all slaveholders hold, with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. "'I have ever found them to be the meanest and basest "'and most cruel and cowardly of all others. "'It was my unhappy lot not only to belong "'to a religious slaveholder, "'but to live in a community of such religionists. "'Very near Mr. Freeland lived the Reverend Daniel Whedon, "'and in the same neighbourhood lived the Reverend Rigby Hopkins.'" And you're like, pastors, surely they should be the best people uh, to be part of their household.'" These were members and ministers in the Reformed Methodist Church. Mr Whedon owned, among others, a woman slave whose name I've forgotten. This woman's back for weeks was kept literally raw, made so by the lash of his merciless religious wretch. He used to hire hands. His maxim was, behave well or behave ill. It is the duty of a master to whip a slave to remind him of his master's authority. Such was his theory and such was his practice. Mr Hopkins was even worse than Mr Whedon. His chief boast was his ability to manage slaves. The peculiar feature of his government was that of whipping slaves in advance of deserving it. He always managed to have one or more of his slaves to whip every Monday morning. He did this to alarm their fears and strike terror into those who escaped. His plan was to whip for the smallest offences, to prevent the commission of large ones, Mr Hopkins could always find some excuse for whipping a slave. Um, and if I read too much, I always descend into tears because it is absolutely outrageous account of Christians participating in the slave trade and the horrors visited on other people. And When you read of some of the treatment dished out and then you find that they're Christians, you wonder, how is this possible? How can someone sit in a sermon on a Sunday morning and then exercise such outrageous atrocities on the Monday morning? How is that possible? But the thing is, it is common. It is common for us to uh, sing the songs and listen to the words on a Sunday morning and then behave outrageously the next day and justify ourselves with all manner of arguments. Some of us are saying, well, surely it's self-evident that you shouldn't treat people like this. How can anyone justify slave ownership and slave brutality like this. These guys are made in the image of God and yet we too lash out. We too deride and take people down with our tongues when they too are made in the image of God. (coughs) We have no trouble in moving from I love Jesus because he's so lovely to a position of I hate you and I'm going to run you down with my mouth. Well, in, um, in the case of the slave traders, they could rest quite easily in some very specific Bible verses. They could lean into particular passages and, see, <coughs> and say, see, this is all I'm doing. I'm not doing anything remarkable or the Apostle Paul wouldn't recognise. And as we travel through 1 Peter, today we get to one of the passages that slave traders and slave owners have used to justify their business for generations. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. So we have read in 1 Peter of the beauty of Jesus... (laughs) (coughs) and of the call to live holy lives, to not get shipwrecked in all sorts of evil behaviour. And then it says this. Verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those that are harsh. Can you begin to see the seeds by which people and slave owners go, even if I'm harsh, the slave needs to buckle under. And it goes on in verse 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And we find this instruction. Thank you. Find this instruction and this call to bear up under slave ownership. And the people that participated in the trade to say, see, Look. God approves, he commends, he says, even if this is the case, slaves need to do what they're told. And if you were to take this in isolation, you could very well have that perspective. But the thing is, 1 Peter is part of a wider canon of Scripture. This is not the only reference to slavery in the Bible. I hope I don't need to go back to the Old Testament when God makes it the biggest priority to free Israel from slavery. Slavery is not part of God's plan for humanity. And his priority for Israel was to free them. And he did marvellous miracles. And we sang of God earlier, parting the sea and the waves to free the Israelites. And so when we read that in 1 Peter chapter 2, we also should remember God's priority of freeing Israel as slaves and of the abomination of slavery at that point. When we read this bit in 1 Peter 2, we should also remember Jesus. And we should remember his conduct and his love for the downtrodden, for the outcast for the subjugated, for the person struggling. It is very difficult to use this passage to justify slavery when you look at the life and teachings of Jesus. It seems more that this is like um, a footnote of, if this is your unfortunate circumstances, bear up under them, rather than... Uh, Slavery should be uh, a feature of any believer's life. James, in his book, tells the wealthy, give the people that work for you their proper wages. Do not extort them and do not rob them of any cent. Give them everything and treat them fairly, otherwise you you will stock up for yourselves God's wrath. And we're going to read later how Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, do it. Slavery is not something to be tolerated and accepted. It is an atrocity that they are trying to navigate through as a community. So... If you are a slave, then it is acceptable to use this passage to work out what you are to do in that position. How are you to behave if you find yourself in the uh, uh, position uh, of slave? But the powerful, the wealthy, they are not to use this passage to justify their conduct they are not to use this this passage to justify being harsh and say well god says even when i'm harsh the slave needs to do what i said this is an outrageous contortion of this passage and the thing is friends that christians especially experienced christians have managed to distort text for 2000 years to justify outrageous conduct Now, we all live with the legacy of sin in our lives. Even after we've confessed Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we are still um, enduring and enjoying that process of being freed from the bonds of sin. We are being, uh, and Scripture says, we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. Francis and Sue and Ruth and Alistair, they're still working out what it is to be holy. They're still working out what things they need to neglect to be holy. They're still working out what things they need to adopt to be holy. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us, distances us from destructive practices, from stuff That wars against our soul, Peter said, um, that we looked at a few weeks back. And this is all part of the divine process. You can't expect Karen and Julia to be perfect now, but they are working towards it. And we need to be very careful, the verses and passages in Scripture that we cherish and we use to justify behaviour that seems to run contrary, particularly to Jesus and his life. There are, I have heard sermons. I've even heard stuff at River Camp that seems to stand contrary to Jesus. Jesus. They can find Bible verses to back it up, but when you measure it to the life of Jesus, you go, oh, I'm not quite sure that's right. It sounds really good, and you've got it in black and white, but when you measure it up to the life of Jesus, something doesn't quite stand right. Friends, we have a full canon of Scripture. We have these 66 books that together represent God's loving, generous, gracious revelation. And we need to make sure that we allow each bit to inform the next. That we do not take out bits that justify our anger, that justify our hatred, that justify uh, insecurity, that justify sin, that justifies immorality, that justifies greed and say, oh, it's okay because this verse says this. Jesus is that perfect picture of graciousness and holiness and goodness. And we need to measure up to that rather than find little get-out clauses that justify our actions. And so I don't want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, and see that... God approves of slavery. It doesn't say that elsewhere, but they have slavery in their community and they are trying to navigate around it and work out what on earth to do with Christians who are slaves. How are they to behave? Now, what are we to do? How many of you are indentured slaves? You know, you've racked up a massive debt or your parents were slaves and you have inherited that curse. None of you. We live in a a fairly free society. It still happens in different forms, but generally... (coughs) <coughs> the people I know, at least in our congregation, none of us would consider ourselves slaves, either in that sort of uh, American uh, slavery situation or in the first century. However, I still think that we can read this text and be helped. I think there is things in our lives that we can be moved forward through by reading this um, and i would going to use the words of Paul to kind of inflate and illuminate this passage. If you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. <coughs> Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. It says this. Slaves. Okay. Again, this is not an endorsement of the slave trade. This is the Christian community trying to navigate around the bleak reality of Christians being slaves in the congregation. It says this: Slaves, obey your ma- earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Everyone, say Jesus. Jesus when Paul says for the Lord he really means Jesus and he says slaves honour Jesus in your work and some of us who quite rightly are prickling at bigotry oppression and slavery like oh I'm not sure I like that but Paul continues whatever you do work at it with all your heart everyone say all your heart all your heart As working for the Lord. And who's the Lord? Jesus. Okay, so we're working with all our heart as we're working for Jesus, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. And normally uh, you end at the chapter, but I really don't want to give the impression that it's all about slaves buckling under. And I'm just going to read uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, if you are a slave owner and you have managed to ignore all the calls in Scripture to free your slaves, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. And there is no way any of the uh, uh, slave trade of that kind of sort of 18th century um, would fall into this category. None of it is fair and right. And he says, uh, Paul says, provide your slaves with what is fair and right. Why? Because you have a master in heaven. And I love that. He goes, you are master of a slave Well, Who is your master? And you need to act like him. And suddenly they're like, oh, Jesus is my master. And this is how he behaves towards me. And I need to behave like that to my people. And I love that sort of subversiveness in in Paul's words. Now, we are not in shackles generally. I don't see anyone with chains round their ankles. Um, And we're here um, of our own free will. And and we tend to do uh, where. Um, sort of Monday to Friday, what we choose to. But many of us in this place work in employment and we wouldn't choose to do that work if we weren't obliged to by our pay packet. You know, if if I wasn't obliged to seek a pay packet, I would be doing fun things Monday to Friday, Perhaps not even letting my kids go to school. We'd just be going on adventures and escapades uh, uh, day in, uh, day out. But I need to work. And as part of that work, I am subject to orders because I don't do um, everything willingly and freely. There are all sorts of jobs, data entry and management meetings that I would not do if I could choose to. But I am obliged to do it because I'm in this, uh, uh, in this position of an employed person. I face disciplinary procedures if I step blind. If I just say, oh, yeah, I just don't fancy work today and I won't let them know and I'm just going to stay away, or if I take half a day off just because I fancy it, or just, you know, uh, uh, just take out all the pens from the stationery cupboard to take home to my kids to play with, (laughs) all these things should be confronted by work. And they say, you don't get to do that. You have to do all these sorts of things that you may not choose to, but you are obliged to because you are in a contract with us. And I'm under someone's authority. Uh, I don't always like it, but there are people around that tell me what to do. Um, Now, this isn't slavery in either the first century or that sort of uh, uh, slave trade sense, but it is uh, people obliged to do stuff that they wouldn't necessarily choose to and they are contractually obliged to do so. Um, and so the question is, how is a Christian to behave, either in paid employment or in a volunteering position, or even in a domestic scenario? What is our conduct supposed to be? Um, Are we to think of ourselves as privileged children of God where everyone gets to serve us because we are so loved by our Heavenly Father? Is that what we are to do? When our family, when our colleagues, when service users and customers come to us, do we feel incredibly self-important and imagine that everyone else has to be nice and kind and um, helpful to us? Well, we are going to have to just uh, redefine and just change some of the ways we are thinking. So before we discuss our conduct in our employment and our domestic situation in our volunteering capacity, I want to talk to you about your boss. Some of us, when we uh, uh, joined the work... Uh, whether we sort of got married or whether uh, uh, we went into the volunteering sector or got uh, finally a job, we may feel like we've got to join the mafia, you know, we're just bossed around left, right and centre, we are bullied and coerced and forced into all sorts of things and every error is severely punished and we may sort of bridle at that and go, don't they know I am a love child of God and I've got this eternal destiny and God is for me and not against me and and why am I being subject to this? And we consider ourselves uh, oppressed. And what happens is we feel justified in getting away with things. And I have seen this again and again, that when someone pushes hard, they feel I'm justified in doing something else. So, the uh, married partner can go and have an affair, the uh, uh, person volunteering go, I'm not being paid for this, I can be really slovenly and do as I see fit. (coughs) And the person in paid employment can shirk and avoid and do stuff that they know is wrong, but they go, you know what, I'm treated really badly, and uh, God understands. The problem is that that reaction... Is ignorant and ungodly. Now, most of us, I hope, know that Jesus has saved us and that he saved us not by an exercise of power but an exercise of sacrifice. Jesus saved us by dying for us, by a supreme act of humility. And grace and subservience. And Jesus, the sacrifice, he is our Saviour and our Lord and our Mentor and our Rabbi and our guide. If Jesus, whose best ever act was to die for us, if he is our Lord, He is our direct manager in every situation. This man who died for the likes of us, and I don't know about you, but I really question uh, Jesus' decision to die for me when I look at my life and my conduct and go, you know what, I'm really not sure that that was the best use of your time and efforts, Jesus. I think there are probably better causes out there than little old me, but I'm grateful that he decided otherwise. If Jesus saved us by serving us, we need to live this out in our daily lives. We need to live this out in our domestic situation, in our volunteering situation, and in our paid employment situation. And that is Peter's and Paul's point. We serve. It doesn't matter How bad your boss, your husband, your colleagues are, ultimately Jesus is your boss. And how does he do things? He serves by sacrifice. And if he's our model, then we copy him in our conduct and in our uh, um, understanding of how it all operates. So we must reject the idea that the conduct of our employer, our manager, um, in our workplace, determines the degree of our service. So if it's a good manager, oh yeah, you know what, we will uh, play ball. But if they're a bad manager, then we will kick out and rebel. Because that's kind of the the world's perspective. You know, if you've got a good manager, you behave. And if you've got a bad one, then you can snipe. And uh, question and undermine and get away with whatever you fancy. And Peter and Paul say, No, that's not the case. Whoever your manager is, you serve him properly because ultimately you're serving Jesus. Christ is our motivation and our model. He is the one that we serve when we get up to whatever we're doing. And he is the measure by which we serve. Now, another problem, and I might be the only one that feels this, but sometimes I feel that the work I do is unimportant or unnecessary. You know what? Big deal... If I forget to write that report or omit that particular aspect of work, you know, it's just bureaucracy and pen pushing. The world's not going to stop turning because I don't do it. Uh, your, your boss is overly pedantic or this, that and the other. And we can also, in this world, dream of better positions. I don't know about you, but it seems the self-help brigade um, is just blossoming now where... You don't deserve to be a, a, a cleaner or a, a kitchen porter or, or, or a, a, um, sort of a rubbish man. Everyone deserves to be the CEO of a mega multinational company and you just need to realise your best you now. And that's a money maker. And let me tell you, they tell you those things because they make money out of it. It's not some sort of wonderful desire that they really think everyone can do that, because it would be impossible. And also, we can buy into our culture's values. So we can think buying stuff is really important. I acknowledge that buying stuff can make you temporarily feel better. And so our culture plays on that. And it plays on buy stuff and make yourself feel better. Buy stuff for yourself and make yourself prettier and grander and more impressive. Uh, Acquire stuff that you don't need. And uh, acquire stuff that shows you how important you are. And so we have a culture that encourages us to consume because that is how the economy keeps growing. We keep buying stuff that we don't need. (coughs) But we have no business devaluing our roles that we're in. We have no business running down our jobs Whether it's in the volunteering sector, whether it's in the domestic situation, or whether it uh, uh, is in in employment. We have no business going, I'm too important for this job, this job is beneath me. I'm too important, I'm too impressive, um, and this is just rubbish. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. I always like to read this passage when I get a little bit above myself. You know, I tend to, I think, oh, I've done all this and now I'm reduced to this. Uh, God, how can you let me do this? And then I read this and I find myself recalibrated. And uh, it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse, um, we'll read in verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. You can imagine the Corinthians suddenly say, Jesus died for me, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of the King, my name is written in the book of life, I am suddenly really important, I can't be a street cleaner, I need to be at least a magistrate in the uh, local government. And Paul says, hang on. Don't get above yourselves. Do not listen to the lies of the self-help brigade, to the psychiatrists and psychologists who would change things. And here we go again. They're really difficult reading um, in 21st century Britain. Were you a slave when you were called? Yeah, Paul, please say, get out. Don't let it trouble you. And here we find this nuanced Christian perspective to uh, slavery. It says, don't let it trouble you. You are no longer a slave through Christ. You are a slave in your situation. Paul doesn't say you can kill your monster or just run away. And then we have this wonderful edit, and I really wish that Christian slave owners had seen this a little bit more. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Paul understands that slavery is a difficult position for a Christian and that that is why he, they, him and Peter have to talk about it. If you are a slave, try and gain your freedom if possible because you are a Christian and, and, you're, um, and that doesn't fit easily with being a slave. But he goes on because he knows there are Christians in his congregation that he's talking to um, that was, uh, were slaves. For the one who was a slave, when called to faith in the Lord, is the Lord's freed person. So he's saying, you know what, you've got this spiritual reality, you are freed. And all the free people are feeling uh, smug or better because they're going, oh, look, they're still a slave, perhaps. They deserve still to be a slave. And he goes on. Uh... Similarly, the one who is free when they were called is Christ's slave, which is fascinating. Do not get above yourself if you, you may be contractually free, but you are Christ's slave. And so we have this um, wrestling with this idea. Do not imagine yourselves better than you ought You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation um, they were in when God called them. And Paul has this immense sense of peace that whatever you're doing when you get saved, you can continue doing it, generally speaking. Now, if you're a, a drug lord or a gun runner, you should rethink your career choice. But generally speaking, in our days of economics and commerce, you can stay there. Your being a child of God is not incompatible with um, sort of being uh, whatever job that you're in at the time. And so there is this sense of all jobs can be used by God for his glory. And there is no job too beneath you. There is no job that is incompatible with Christianity in the terms of humility and pride. We can do anything. Our jobs don't define us. Kirsty and Ruth and Karen, their positions in the economics of today don't define them. Jesus defines them. Their place is defined by their relationship with Christ and so whatever work we get up to tomorrow morning we can do it conscientiously with Jesus as our boss and we can do it thoroughly once we have a clear picture of our true master, you know, that Jesus is the one we're serving The work we do takes on a different significance, a different um, aspect. How does someone work with Jesus as their boss? So forget your niggly boss, forget your unjust boss, forget the boss that never says anything nice about you or constantly runs you down or anything else. With Jesus as our boss... How do we work? Well, uh, Peter and Paul say, you work hard. And you work without recognition. You work even when the boss is away at a training course. I used to love those when I was uh, uh, working in a factory in Horsham. Like, sometimes they go on the training course and you're like, I can arrive late, take longer, lunch breaks... Um, You could chat more and have more coffees. And um, you know what, the the work could be slightly stubborn because they weren't kind of peering over your shoulder. Uh, And Peter and Paul in the Bible sort of come against this and say, yeah, it doesn't work. You need to work as Jesus, as your boss, constantly. And so we work without supervision. We shouldn't need to be watched We shouldn't need someone to constantly manage us. We should be really good at turning up on time, not taking dodgy sick days and uh, leaving at the end of the day properly. We should be uh, people that are seen as honest and people with integrity. And so when the boss is there or not, it shouldn't matter because our conduct's the same, because our boss is always there. And let me tell you, this also means that we work proactively. We don't just do the bare minimum. We bring solutions and innovations. And this is starting to sound like some sort of tech company, I know. Um, But we should, when things come up, we should go, how can I overcome this? You are not to be the one when someone phones up for a problem, uh, and it's really easy to do. So... um, we have people on the phones. It's really easy to do. Someone phones up with a problem and they just go... The computer says, no, can't do that. No, can't, can't help you. I've, some People come up with some bad problems. You go, no, it's not my job, mate. More than my job's worth is to help you out with that. And there are people like that all over. Um, you will probably have found them in the civil service because uh, their jobs are very well-defined and they get fed up very quickly and they go, yeah, the computer says, no, can't help. Um, but if possible, we are not to be like that. If possible, we are to try and be helpful. If possible, we are to try to be proactive and innovative and say, well, I can't help you with that, but let me show you someone that can. Or I may not be able to help you with that, but have you thought of doing this? Now... Um, So we're not to be the mindless drone um, and we're not to be slacking off and we're not to be stealing company stuff. And that includes everything from time to uh, Bic pens or um, company fuel or anything else. The capacity for stealing just increases as you get more responsibility and work. And uh, sometimes I um, uh, look at a position i'm in and go i could take advantage of this really easily but the idea is we don't because jesus is our boss not not the can i get away with this being our boss and so we try and do what our boss wants and more regardless of what our boss is like so we work not for our boss but for jesus Now, it's really easy to imagine all our bosses hearing this sermon and going, fantastic. The opportunities for exploiting these stupid Christians is just exponentially marvellous. I can expect them to come in early and go home late, do unreasonable jobs above their pay grade and have all sorts of outrageous expectations that are outlandish. But there is a flip side to being a Christian at work. In the volunteering sector, or in the commercial sector, or in the domestic sector. Um, it says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. And you know, the Holy Spirit's in your heart, and the Holy Spirit gives you guidance and wisdom. And here's our conscience. And we don't do things that are against our conscience, that the Holy Spirit is informed. And so, in our work, whether it's commercial, volunteer, domestic scenario, we don't exploit others. Because that's incompatible with Jesus' heart. We don't lie and we don't cheat for business purposes. And I'm sorry if any of you are estate agents or second-hand car salesmen because that is a difficult uh, square to circle. We mean, this means we are truthful and considerate in all our dealings. Not just with the chain of command, but with all the people um, that we work alongside and to the customer or client or whoever um, is sort of benefiting uh, from our work. And we are truthful and considerate. You can easily develop a culture where the work becomes very insular and you just uh, uh, malign and be unhelpful to anyone that comes from the outside. I've worked in cultures, work cultures like that, where someone comes along and you just laugh at them and make fun of them and and, and you just belittle them and make them feel really small. Um, Have you ever taken a car to a garage and felt like that? And you go, oh, your carburetor's lost its... Um, third exhaust thing. And you're like, what? And they go, "Well, it'll be £5,000 and uh, um, and, it take nine weeks. And you're like, well, I don't know any difference, do I? And uh, so you go in and they've just taken you for a ride. And that is the culture of that place and Christians can get easily sucked in that. But we work at it with all our heart and our heart has been refined by Christ and so we don't get to do that. We don't join in. We're charging... um, Many thousands of pounds for correcting the third exhaust of the carburetor, because that's probably nonsense. We seek a godly balance between the needs of our business, our families, and a wider society. We need to understand the whole picture. Whatever we do, it has an impact on us, on our families, and on society. And so we're careful what jobs we choose. I think there are jobs Christians are doing at the moment they probably can't really do if they allow the fullness of Scripture to influence them. I think there are jobs out there that that are just incompatible. Um, I'll let you decide which ones you think of in that. And some of us need to allow the fact that business. Is a, a part of this wider picture and other priorities exist and it is okay to say family and society are affected by this and we need to think about how we conduct ourselves now this is not straightforward and I think I could probably go on for another hour in exploring all uh, a load of things that have occurred to me so I've been in sort of work in life for sort of uh, 20 odd years, um, and there have all sorts of been moral questions that have occurred to me that I could explore with you this morning. All sorts of things that cause you to go, Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Is that really a moral question, Kevin? Um, and so it's not straightforward. We've all got different places that we are working and volunteering and helping with, and the way forward is not always obvious, but we need to navigate it nevertheless. At work, I've tried to be efficient with people under my care and I've been called a bully because they don't like what I get up to. Conversely, and this is wonderful, I've tried to be graceful to people. You know that they're struggling and I've tried to be graceful and I've been called weak because people do that, don't they? If you try and do something really well, oh, you're a bully and you're causing, you're coercing everyone else. And if you try and be graceful and helpful, oh, you're weak and you're not holding the company line. And so it's difficult, and often people around us don't understand. But we're Christians, and our measure is not what other people think, but Christ. So I've uh, tried to be honest and I've tried to contend and contest business practices because they seem dishonest, and I've been called puritanical and needlessly obsessive. Why are you sweating that, Kevin? Just tick the box. Even though you haven't done it, it's just what everyone else does. Just relax. Sometimes I tick the box, and sometimes I don't. We have to make a call on these things. We have to ask the Holy Spirit. We have to look at the situation. It is difficult, but the idea is that we're engaged with our work life, our domestic life, our volunteering life. That we care about it and know that Jesus cares about it. Um, And I've revealed my faith at work, and I've been despised and complained about and even had a, a wonderful disciplinary process. Um, about that. Um, So that was fascinating. So everyone's work has its own challenges. Whatever you get up to, it has your own challenges. Some of us are part of industries where everyday business confronts us with moral questions. If you work in selling arms to some dodgy regimes abroad, that should cause you to question how you conduct yourself. You should think, is Jesus delighted with what I get up to? Or can things be done differently? If your job is to uh, pollute the rivers and fill the skies full of, sort of smoke and chemicals, again, you should think, oh, is this something good for me to do? Or should I be doing something different or being trying to uh, change things? We had this fascinating conversation a few years back with a doctor who came to our house group, and they were talking about stem cell research. And Christians, um, at least historically, have immediately gone, well, we shouldn't want that, you know? It has part of the uh, sanctity of life and and, and human body. But he had some amazing, intelligent questions that he asked in response, and we heard and saw someone... That used their faith and their brain to engage with their job in a different way. And I really valued um, that conversation. Some of us work in cultures um, that are saturated in profane speech and dishonouring language. Hi, um, when I did work. Um, uh, You know that thing with the work experience, that was it, when I was at school and work experience and I was in this warehouse in Horsham um, and um, I was a Christian teenager and I had my eyes open to a whole range of activities I had never encountered uh, before. Uh, But you have to work really hard to be careful with your language and what you laugh at and what you participate in. Um, There was something that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago um, that uh, it was sort of laughed at by a whole group of guys and I didn't know where to look or how to respond because it was not good what was going on. And it was in a work situation and I was like, wow, Holy Spirit, what do I do here? Some of us... I think this might be slightly less likely in this little room. Some of us will be surrounded by wealth and greed that encourages exploitation, corruption and excess, Um, where, you know what, just uh, um, sort of massaging figures and running other people down um, and lying and cheating and exploiting. It's just run of the mill. And there are businesses out there like that. And um, all that's the measure is the the size of your pay packet at the end and the size of your house and where you go on holiday. And Christians need to step back from that and say, you know what, that's not my culture. Jesus is my master, not this and how you run things. Some of us deal with unreasonable employees and bosses that take advantage at every turn. Um, I don't think I've really suffered from that. But some of you are asked outrageous things by people that you work with and people that are in charge of you. And You need to make sure that you work at it with all your heart by asking, Holy Spirit, is this good? And you need to respond wisely as well, rather than just fold your arms and go, no, not doing that, don't like you. We 've got to do it wisely and intelligently and with the Holy Spirit. you and I will be tempted in a million ways not to reflect the character of Jesus in our workplace, in our domestic situation and in our volunteering circles, but we need to keep on doing it. We may make mistakes we may do things that Jesus isn 't pleased with but This is the process of sanctification. This is the process of becoming holy. This is the process of trying to honour the person in charge, even when they're not very nice. Remember uh, last week we talked about uh, Peter advocating, obeying Nero, who I think is the Antichrist of Revelation. And that is a big deal. And we each have our own... Part to play in obedience and how we do it in our own situations. So I want to just end by saying God has placed you where you are. It's not accident or freakish. And you are asked by Jesus to work in there well with all your heart. And when he says your whole heart, it doesn't just mean. Just work really hard beyond all the hours and do everything that's asked for you. Is work intelligently and wisely and compassionately and graciously and holily. We need to serve Jesus wherever we are. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father. Uh, We'd love to be with you right now. We've had enough of sin and death and evil um, and it can be really exhausting. But Lord God you in your wisdom have not returned and Lord God uh, we are responsible for um, navigating life until you return. We are responsible for uh, cultivating the resources you have given us till you return. We are, be, we are responsible for um, our employment and volunteering and domestic scenarios until you return. Jesus, fill our hearts, fill our minds... Help us to be really good at obeying you, even in the difficult situations, even when we are derided and ridiculed for it. Uh, Lord God, I, I pray that when that time of judgment comes, we will be able to stand before you in this aspect and say, you know what, I followed your advice. And Lord God, I just pray also that none of us would have that blind spot of justifying evil with Bible passages that we would allow the full glory of Scripture to inform our conduct, and that we would be really good ambassadors for you. Uh, Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.